0: This is Que Esperanzas, a new series on Book Public from Texas Public Radio. The expression Que Esperanzas is an ironic or pessimistic interjection meant to convey there's little hope and the improbability of success. Book Public's Que Esperanzas series focuses on short stories with protagonists who are women surviving catastrophic injustices in their everyday lives and facing them with a thin measure of hope. This week's story is Because That's Just Easier by Dana Johnson. Protagonist Frida is worried about her daughter Dakota and her fear of the outside world on the streets of Los Angeles. They live in a high rise away from the homeless people who live on the streets that they must traverse in their everyday lives. Dakota is sensitive, watchful, thoughtful. Her own perspective is influences the way Frida sees the world. Frida learns that maybe she's done too much to avoid the outside world in her own ways and deny the reality of what goes on out there because, as the title of the story tells us, maybe it's just easier that way. Or is it? Here's Dana Johnson.
1: Because that's just easier. Their kid was turning weird. She refused to go outside unless she was in a car. Overnight, this seemed to be the case. She didn't want to walk. She didn't want to walk out of the front door of their loft, walk down the hall, get in the elevator, walk out of the elevator, and then walk 10 paces onto the street and out into the world. No, she'd get to the door and dig in, screaming and wailing as if she'd lost her mind. The last thing that used to work To get the child out of the house no longer worked cupcakes that was all it used to take i bet they have the red velvet today frida would say come on sweetie you're with me i'm not gonna let anything happen to you but the last time they did that just two days ago a man wearing a blazer with no shirt lunged at them murdering something about jesus and the devil devil he kept saying devil When he said it, it sounded like devil. Give me some sugar, he demanded. He was holding on to the waist of his pants, which had a rope as a belt. His black blazer was so dirty that parts of it glistened in the sunlight. Something like lipstick was smeared on his cheeks, and his long hair stood out at the ends so that he looked like some deranged scarecrow. He lunged at them with his big hands, near enough to see the length of the nails and the blackness underneath them. And she jerked Dakota's body against her own. But the man was no longer interested in them. He'd suddenly changed course like some prop monster in a carnival ride. He walked on muttering and everyone on the street who saw him walked past him, eyes fixed on other things. In front of their building, Dakota begged to be taken back upstairs. I don't have any sugar, she wailed. And when Frida tried to calm her down, one of Dakota's bony knees caught her in the chin. Cupcakes were no longer going to cut it.
0: For our listeners who maybe haven't read the story yet, can you give us just a quick summary of the story?
1: It's a story about a couple who has decided to move to downtown Los Angeles um, with their child. And because they live near Skid Row, um, they're having to figure out how to live there with a small child. And the mother in particular is reckoning with the cost of raising a child in the middle of such poverty and chaos um, amid sort of the unhoused population of Los Angeles.
0: And I think people don't realize that that's where Skid Row is and uh, our characters of Frida and Jackson and Dakota are living in a high rise, sort of high above all of that that's going on down in the streets. Um, and so it's just such an interesting, uh, juxtaposition of spaces as we see. And, you know, one would think, well, it does seem like some upward mobility for anybody to be able to live there. And yet, um, there's just such a fine line between, uh, where they're living and the kind of life that they have and the, and, and really something that I think is dictated by their own careers, um, Jackson and Frida, and then what's going on sort of down in the rest of the world. It's such an interesting thing that you do with place in the story.
1: Yeah. I mean, there is that duality of living in the city and particularly downtown. I love it. I still live down here and I love it because of everything that's around me, you know, that's our central library, one of the most beautiful libraries to me in the world is here. Um, Disney hall, theaters, Dodger stadium is just up the street, you know? And so there is this attraction to a space like this downtown. And yet we are living Together with folks who obviously don't have the privilege of living as we live in the spaces that we live, you know, um, going to bars with $16 cocktails and restaurants and all of that. And so there is always that negotiation of sort of living in a space like this and witnessing, um, frankly, the ways in which we are letting our fellow humans down yeah. um, without the ability to see, without understanding or having the ability to know how to solve this this huge problem. Um, so yeah, that living in that duality of, you know, living in a fairly nice space here downtown um, among, among folks who don't have that is that's been a difficult space to be in ever since I've lived down here. Um, So I wanted to write about that.
0: And I see it's uh, the frustration and the worry of Frida is so palpable here because this is something that she cannot fix for her little child. I mean, it's um, for as much as she tries to think of ways to bring Dakota out, you know, with a cupcake or an ice cream to bring, bring her out, to go through this, you know, step-by-step process. You go to the elevator, you go down, you know, and all of these steps to get her. I mean, she seems like she could be not agoraphobic, but just have that fear of just being in that space um, down below in the streets and it feels l- like almost um, emblematic for Frida of so many things that she won't be able to fix for her child. She she will not have that. She doesn't have that sense of control. Uh, maybe even in her relationship with her husband, as we see, we sort of are seeing these things sort of um, being chipped away at and these tensions Um, and they seem to come in, in this particular story from this fear that the child has that then is something that Frida is absorbing as, you know, all of the things she cannot fix, all of the things that she won't be able to fix.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a fine line between one has to live one's life. The world is as it is. And in some ways, um, I think you know, Frida's husband thinks that they're doing their child a disservice if they try to raise her in this sort of sanitized Disneyland-like life. But for Frida, there's trauma in seeing people on the streets with nothing, um, suffering through their mental illness or drug disorder, drug use disorder, drug abuse. You know, that that is something that works not only on a child, but on an adult. And so what is the balance between sort of, you know, not trying to live in denial, Mm -hmm. but also trying to save your child from traumatic experiences? There's a balance there. And she's trying to figure that out in, in the story.
0: And even inside their space, the space where the three of them are in this, what seems like such a lovely home um, is the, uh, then there's these elements of like the comic books that Jackson likes to read, uh, the zombie movies. And then, so like there are these kinds of introductions to you know to horrible things sort of right there too that Frida is afraid of and how to shield Dakota even from that. And and this is something that Jackson would like to share with Frida, like watch this show with me about the zombies and she can right. really stand to to watch the the show. Um but it again it just seems like for Frida even inside we see like um again like the signs of things to come, you know, the types of things that that she won't be able to shield her child from very easily with the internet and so on. And with television, things are just there in full view. And I like that line where Jackson points the remote and, you know, as if it were a magic wand and it vanishes, if only it were a magic wand. Right. So there's, there's all of this sort of, that's building up the tension in the story, even inside um, the the home space, it's so interesting to me.
1: I was thinking about, and of course, obviously, I'm not the first person to think about this, but sort of the sort of the normalization of violence and the kind of the numbing that comes with that, mm-hmm. so that if one is constantly watching violence, fake as it is, uh, and blood and guts and gore. Um, to be able to watch that unflinchingly means to my mind that of course you've gotten used to that or you've accepted that. And, and so again, that's what Frida is struggling against. She doesn't think that that's normal, fake or not TV or not film or not. It's not something that one should watch and then just sort of normalize. And um, and again, she and her husband have very different philosophies about this. And And so I was thinking about that in their home, she's struggling with this. And then also down below on the streets, she's struggling with this of, you know, which is better? Is it better just to normalize it so that we can get through our day and go get our cupcakes and go to the library and do what we need to do? Or is that the tragedy of normalizing that so that you're able to go about your day, which is worse?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it do- And so when the family does go out there for their walk in the story, we, w- along with them, encounter the worst of of, uh, of Dakota's, uh, you know, nightmares, or even Frida's, where they are approached by uh, these homeless men. And we can see how, at least for Frida, she begins to align in her own mind, the zombies from the TV show that she could not look at. And, you know, it's on in full view, She and she looks away from it and then outside she would like to look away from it and make sure that dakota doesn't see it and but dakota is seeing it dakota is able to see it you know they've come out of the house almost as a, a form of practicing with her so she can get over her fear of mm-hmm. being outside in, in that space um, it's just such a powerful, powerful scene where everything seems to be going okay, they're on their way to um get a treat, and then just the worst po- the worst possible thing happens, and then what we really see is Frida's reaction. We're sort of we're sort of seeing how um Dakota is so sensitive and so watchful, and that seems to influence. Frida's perspective. I mean, not just as a protective parent, but like now it feels like she's seen the, you know, the zombie movie through the eyes of her child or seeing the outside world, you know, sort of from that, that vantage point. And it's something so heartrending in a way that, um, what it does is it, it inspires her with fear. I mean, she's She's frozen for a second there and doesn't really know what to do. Um, it's just a very powerful thing, and it's so complicated. the The idea of of homelessness, as you say, uh, of mental illness, of drug addiction, of so, so many things that need to be taken to a, into account. Beyond, they're like zombies. He's a, a you know these sort of negative characterizations that people can so offhandedly, um, apply, uh, because it's easy, right. Or, you know, or it's because it's convenient and we can look away for a little while and not have to think about it. Um, but it's there in full view and it's, it's always there in terms of it's right outside their front door.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, Frida is so struggling to maintain in front of her child and a little kind of like, uh, there's a dynamic shift there where Dakota is kind of, she's so determined, her little mind is, you know, she sees her mom is struggling at some point. Her mom, Dakota says, you're squeezing my hand really hard, you know? And Dakota in in that moment just becomes this person that's just like, all right, I know I'm a little kid, but I'm just going to get through this too. Um, and so they're both trying to negotiate this in very different ways. And what I tried to do in those moments is, you know, Dakota, because she's aware of the zombie movies and all of that. Um, and she's seeing sort of like the mechanical mannerisms of um, the homeless people or persons they encounter, she makes that connection. Mm -hmm. But what I was trying to suggest is that what becomes of us, the supposed living who can just sort of walk without feeling, without looking, without understanding, without heart, right? Mm -hmm. There's a kind of zombification that happens to us when we live this way to become kind of heartless and numb Mm -hmm. in order to survive seeing fellow humans live this way. It's not fair, it's not right, it's not just, it shouldn't be happening. And yet I've got to get myself to the train station, to the Metro link and somehow be okay with seeing what it is that I'm seeing on a daily basis how do I do that? There's a way of like somehow kind of shutting down a little bit. And so what I'm asking is like, you know, like who is the zombie exactly in this story? Who are the zombies? Um, it's a, it's a tough thing.
0: That That's so interesting that it was Frida that's that's holding on to Dakota's hand so tightly that it hurts her. And and it's, it's Frida that's holding on. It's not the other way around. right? Uh, right. And it's such an, as you say, it's such a a flip in the dynamic between the two of them. And it it seems to have done something very subtle in terms of how Dakota is now managing, Um, you know, and once they're back home and they, she talks about how, they were sort of pushing her toward a certain kind of toy and maybe not the, the girly girl Barbie stuff, but just Dakota just has her own her own mind about it. and And I come to this point in the story and I think, of course, you know, at that moment where Frida is reacting so strongly to what they're seeing, Dakota is doing her best to manage it. And once they get home and it, you know, the, it's sort of the, the, more they try to force certain things on her, the more she's going to manage it just according to her own sense of herself. Yeah. It's something really interesting that happens in that part of the story. I feel like as
1: I don't have children, but I feel like at some point lots of kids have this understanding sometimes where, well, my parents, they're just people too. And so at some point, if they're not understanding me or getting me or helping me in the ways that I need help, you figure things out on your own, even as little people, you know, yeah. you become who you become because of what you're experiencing. And so I imagine that at some point, because her mom seems very fragile surrounding this and her dad isn't being very helpful, and he's just saying it is what it is, and you need to understand that people live this way, that at a certain point, little Dakota comes up with her own solution, right? Um, That she's not being helped in the ways that she needs to be helped, and so she helps herself. And uh, she just becomes all right with it at a certain point.
0: Yes, and the, and she gets sort of the last word in the story about it, and it's such a, it's such a, um, an important idea. Um, there's this short story by uh, Oscar Casares, where the, this kid works in a fireworks stand. He's just like ten years old but he's privy to all of the things that the owner of the firework stand does and he's really a very contemptible terrible person <laughs> <laughs> and at the end the uh, the boy really wants to quit the job but he's afraid of the dad and he's afraid of what the dad will say and on and on it's all these dramatic things happen and at the end the you know the dad says how's it going and the boy says oh everything's great and the dad says see, I told you things would get better. Mm. And they, the fact is they didn't get better, but the boy learned how to play the game of this kind of, you know, uh, terrible man. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and it's such a, to me, that's such a sad story, uh, of, you know, of the boy was, is growing up to be more like this terrible boss than, than like his dad, who, who is trying to please, um, But in this story, I think in terms of like the last line, again, it's like in that other story, things didn't get better. But in this story, I feel like, you know, Dakota understands something very critical. Um, And, you know, this is the way that we live. This is the way that, that we sort of grow up, you know, it, our innocence is chipped away all the time. Uh, you know, we see our parents arguing or we, you know, we realize that, you know, there there are people in the world who don't have a home and who have diseases and who can't be helped. And, you know, things start chipping away at our innocence and at our understanding of the world. And at a certain point we still as children, I think, have to find a way to live through it and, you know, and to negotiate those spaces. It's such a hard lesson. I mean, it's such a a dramatic moment in the story. Um, but it's, I, I also feel like it's something that Frida and Jackson too, to a certain extent that Frida is living through, um, through her child as a parent.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think Frida, is trying to retain that innocence that you talk about and raise a healthy child. And um, so she's, you know, she's, I mean, she's trying to maintain her own mental health too, right? And her own frame of mind. And so she and Dakota are sort of symbiotic in that way. Um, but yeah, you were, you were talking about how kids learn these hard lessons and a lot of it comes at us through ways in which even our own parents don't understand. And so that little section about, you know, they tried really hard to raise her with sort of like gender-free toys or whatever, but kids take in what they take in. You can insist or try and insist on a certain, uh, way for your child, but they're going to like what they like. They're going to be interested in what they're interested in. And in spite of themselves, they might even take in things that they resist. There's no telling. There's a weird alchemy of kind of the world and what lands on the psyche of a, of a person, particularly, uh, particularly of a child. And so, It's the same with, you know, they're trying to make her not be so much into Barbie and those kinds of toys, but she ends up liking those things anyway. And Frida is trying to protect her child from sort of the harshness of the world. And yet by the end of the story, as a way to survive, Dakota has sort of taken on some of that harshness of the world and has become hardened in her own little way to the suffering of others outside that apartment, because that's just easier, right? So I wanted to talk about those complications and how basically so much of everything is out of our control. And
0: how does one
1: then try to regain control? And at what cost?
0: Dana Johnson, thank you so much for talking to me about this story. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for having me on.
0: Dana Johnson is the author of the story, Because That's Just Easier. It can be found in her collection of stories titled, In the Not Quite Dark. This has been Que Esperanzas, a series focusing on short stories with protagonists who are women surviving catastrophic injustices in their everyday lives, on Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. We had help this week from David Martin Davies. I'm Yvette Benavides.